You are now listening to the Bayshore Community Church Podcast. Our mission is to connect to God, connect to people, and to serve the community. Thank you for joining us today and wherever you are listening. We hope that this message inspires you, encourages you, and transforms you. Our prayer is that this is just the beginning of a conversation between you and Jesus. Enjoy the message. Can I just say first, uh, Pastor Danny's here with us today. Can everybody get a big hand for Pastor Danny? Uh, I just wanted to take this moment to honor you, Pastor Danny. Thank you for being here. It means so much to me personally, but to our whole Fenwick campus. And this church, this campus would not be here without the years, the decades of faithfulness and service and leadership that Pastor Danny and Karen have provided. And so can we give one more big hand for Pastor Danny? Thank you so much, Pastor Danny. Well, we've been doing something a little different. Uh, we've been reading the teaching text out loud uh, over all of us because in 1 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy to devote himself to the public reading of Scripture. And as we've said, Scripture for most of history was spoken, not read privately. And so I love that we read our Bibles privately, but there is something powerful about the spoken Word of God in the community. So would you stand with me for a moment as we read the teaching text for today? If you have the message of conversation guide, it's right in front of you. The teaching text for today is Galatians 5, 13 through 26, which says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not let your freedom become an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, live by the Spirit, and you will never carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that whatever you want, you may not do these things. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are sexual immorality, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Things which I am telling you in advance, just as I said before, that the ones who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh together with its feelings and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, we must also follow the Spirit. We must not become conceited, provoking one another and being one another. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word today. We pray that you would be here with us. Prepare us to hear from your word. Prepare us to hear from your Spirit this morning. Teach us to obey your word and to live life in your spirit. Thank you for this beautiful Sunday where we can come to gather and proclaim your name, your resurrection. Would you be in our midst this morning and open our hearts to receive from you. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I don't know if you know this, but we are living in a pandemic. It's one that's been raging 
It's been claiming the lives of our people and infecting our communities at an uncontrollable rate. No, I'm not talking about the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm sure we've all had enough of that one, but I'm talking about mental illness, or in other words, anxiety, depression, and outrage. See, anxiety, depression, and outrage, these are a pandemic that is sweeping our nation. We've all heard some of those stats about mental illness in America, especially among teens. And I wanted to read you this recent Gallup poll uh, data. So quote, it says, Americans' positive self-assessments of their mental health are the lowest in more than two decades of research, of Gallup polling. In all, 31% of U.S. adults describe their mental health or emotional well-being as excellent, the worst rating by three percentage points. That is insane. Only one out of three Americans feels positive about their mental state. That means, as Pastor Joel actually shared with us last week, that only two out of, that two out of three Americans do not feel good about their mental state. And they report experiencing anxiety, depression, and negative mental health regularly. Not sometimes, not often, regularly. Those are not good, good odds. In the same article, Gallup reported that before the COVID-19 pandemic, Americans' excellent ratings of their mental health averaged 45%. So about half. That's not bad. Not good, but not bad. Gallup polling early in the pandemic found that U.S. adults were concerned about their own mental health and that of their children. By November 2020, eight months after the pandemic began in the U.S., Americans' excellent assessments of their own mental health dropped nine points to 34%, a new low since the measure was first tracked in 2001. That's even worse, right? The COVID-19 pandemic created some of the worst mental health in the last 20 years. This is not news to any of us. We were all there. You would think though, right, that our mental health would have gone up after the lockdowns. We're out of the house now, life's somewhat back to normal, quarantines and mandates are over. But here we are, three years later, and our mental health is continuing to decline, not going up, not staying the same, continuing to go down. And because we don't know what to do about it, or at least we can't agree about what to do about it, we're also defined by outrage, fear, and division. Why is this? What's happened to our lives? Why are we so depressed? Guys, we live in America, by far the most wealthy, advanced, free country in all of history, in all of the world. We should be the most secure, happy, and peaceful, joyful generation ever. But in the most advanced, progressed nation in the world, we are the saddest, the most depressed, the most anxious, and we don't even know how to get along with each other anymore. So what's going on? How is this possible that we live in the best nation in the world and we are the worst generation? I would like to offer today to you that the problem is what theologian Carl Truman calls the rise and the triumph of the modern self and what the Bible calls the works of the flesh. The modern self, Truman says, is someone whose identity is endlessly pliable according to his own desires and felt needs and whose anthropology ties human dignity and personhood 
to one's ability to live unencumbered from any tradition or moral restraint that would limit the fulfillment of desire or will. Translation, the modern self is the idea that I can do whatever I want, I can define things how I want to, and live how I want, and that this alone will produce the greatest freedom, love, joy, and peace in the world. Everybody just needs to be left alone to do what they want to do, right? As long as we, hey, just you do you, you got it, you like, you know, you only live once, do things the way you want to do them, it's all good. You don't bother me, I don't bother you, we're all happy, right? This idea is nowhere more obvious than in the House of Mouse Disney. Have you guys seen the It movie of 2013, Frozen? No? Where have you been? Sailor, you're in here. You've seen Frozen, right? Yeah, exactly. She said, yeah. Because it was the movie of 2013. As many Disney movies are, it's a triumph of animation and storytelling set in a beautiful fantasy world that comes to life with compelling, funny, engaging characters. Remember the lyrics of the main song, Let It Go? How about this one, right? Let it go, let it go, can't hold it back anymore. Let it go, let it go, turn away and slam the door. I don't care what they're going to say. Who just struggled not to sing? Probably not a lot of you because you haven't seen the movie. Here's another one. Elsa sings, it's funny how some distance makes everything seem small and the fears that once controlled me can't get to me at all. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I am free. Interesting. Did you catch that? What's the goal of freedom of Elsa's whole life? No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Test the limits. Break through. No control, full autonomy to let no one tell you who you can't be and that you're not who you think you are because that's the real you. The real you is what's on the inside. No one else can define that but you. Now, listen, I don't misunderstand me. I love Disney. I grew up on Disney. And Frozen is a great movie about self-discovery and not allowing the people who have hurt you and controlled you and abused you to run your life. And that's an important message. But... The movie, and the movie is a little bit more nuanced than that, but this message of self-autonomy in the story is pretty clear. It's one of those, this is but one of the movies, by the way, that has formed our American minds. For all of those of you who have not seen Frozen, let me hit you with another movie. Anybody ever heard of the movie Dirty Dancing? Oh yeah, right? Patrick Swayze? Come on. I prefer Roadhouse, but Callie's favorite movie is, is uh, Dirty Dancing. And it's a great, classic 80s movie. What's the point of that whole story again? Nobody puts baby in a corner. And what does that mean? That only baby gets to decide if Patrick Swayze is good enough for her. That this life that she feels on the inside is right for her. Only she gets to decide that that's good. Her parents don't know anything. She's never been there with Patrick Swayze dancing, knowing what it's like. Only she can do that. And who are the bad guys in the story? Her parents. The people were like, hey, honey, I don't know that going to this nasty club where you know nobody is a good idea. And he might not be a good fit for you. They're the enemies of the story because who's right? Who gets to define truth? 
baby does, right? So before all of you start sitting back and saying, well, this new generation and these Disney movies, I just can't. Nope, you were raised on Dirty Dancing. You've watched just as many movies with that messaging as has all of the kids of this generation. Because that's the American story, right? What does our Declaration of Independence say? What is it? The right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Sounds to, sounds to me like Elsa and Baby are just patriots. <laughs> right? They're fighting for their right to life, love, truth, happiness, to pursue what makes them happy. But what's amazing is that all these movies end when the character gets what they want. Because that's the goal, right? As soon as you can get rid of the shackles and just do what you want and have that thing that you want, everything will be perfect. So one hour and 26 movies in, I've had the time of my life, right? And she, and Patrick Swayze lifts her and the movie ends and you're like, gosh, life is good. I just need to figure, no one puts me in the corner, right? But the movie ends right there, right? It'd be great if life worked that way, that if I get what I want, man, life's good. But in fact, life, at least in my experience, is much more complicated, much more bittersweet than that. And as the stats above show us, if Elsa and Baby were right, we would be the happiest we've ever been, ever. Most advanced society, most access to medicine, clean water and food, technology. Do you know that you're in the top 1% or 5%, I forget which exactly it is. Either way, it's a big number. You're in the top percentage of wealthy people in the world if you own a car. Do you know that? In the world. Not just in, not in America, in the entire world. We should be the happiest people ever. But we're not. One out of three of us feels good. Two out of three of us are bad all the time. That's not a good stat for the people in this room, much less the nation. We're completely riddled with anxiety, depression. We don't know what to do about it. And you're like, oh, no, Chase, Pastor Chase, I'm fine. I'm good. Are you? Let me, let me ask you a question. You ever sat down to watch a movie on Netflix or Disney Plus or HBO, whatever it is that you've got, and instead of sitting down and picking a movie, you scroll for an hour? Because no, you don't know what to watch? You're like, oh, well, this, this might be good. That might be good. I don't know. You just, instead of actually picking something, you look through all the, you say, oh, action. Okay, what, well, let's see what they've got before I pick one. Um, and then you go over to Romance, like, oh, maybe we're in, the, you know, you go through all these movies, and shows, and you end up not actually watching anything new, what do you end up doing? You go back to that show or that movie that you watch when you feel anxious, and it's your comfort show, right? It might be Seinfeld, it might be Parks and Rec, could be Blue Bloods, could be so many other shows. Mine's The Office, don't judge. But you were, what were you doing? You were anxiously trying to find the right movie before you committed to one because you wanted to make sure it was the perfect one. You wanted to make sure it was the one that made you feel good on the inside that you enjoyed. So you're so nervous to pick one that it might not be good enough that you end up not watching anything. Ever heard of FOMO? This is a my generation thing. FOMO means the fear of missing out. 
That is a millennial and Gen Z thing, meaning that you're so scared that you might miss out on what life has for you that you just end up anxious. You don't know where to go. You're sad that you didn't get invited to the thing. You're looking at social media. Well, everybody else has a great life and I must just suck. And so then you're nervous. You're like, I don't, you know, you don't get to go out or whatever. And then you end up being so anxious because you're missing out. What if, what if that was the event where I could truly express myself? My real me wants to be out hanging out with my friends on a Friday night. And here you are in your bed eating ice cream and watching The Office. I'm, that was an example. I, I, it's not my experience. That's not, I was talking to someone at a coffee. Um, that's classic anxious behavior, right? But of course, not all of us showcase our anxiety through Netflix. That's a funny example. But the reality is that many of us showcase this exact kind of behavior in anxiety, depression, through alcohol, self-medication, pornography, social media, drugs, gambling, toxic relationships, self-medication, workaholism, on and on and goes. You get the point. The reality is that all of us are broken down by disappointment, by sin, frustration, trauma. All of us are searching for some way to realize the love, the joy, and the peace that we all hope for on our terms. And sadly, we are chronically unsatisfied, anxious, and depressed because the love, joy, and peace that we all hope for eludes us. Instead, we are bombarded by the catastrophes, the problems, and the pains of life, trying so hard to keep our heads above water as life crashes wave after wave after wave over us. Paul speaks to this exact idea in our text for today, Galatians 5, 13 through 26. Let me sketch out for you very quickly the context of Paul's letter to the Galatians because I think that Paul has something to say to us today. See, the letter of the Galatians is a focused attempt by Paul to address serious issues in the Galatian church. See, people had taken Paul's gospel message of freedom and life in the spirit and turned it into a way of doing whatever they wanted, controlling others, restricting others, creating legalism, and jostling for position amongst one another. And this passage that we're reading today comes towards the end of the letter, but it's an integral part of Paul's argument. In chapters 1 and 2, Paul defends his gospel. He says, I did not get it from any secondhand apostles or from the Jerusalem apostle, but that he received it straight from Jesus himself when Jesus met him on the Damascus road. Now Jesus has commissioned him to preach his gospel message. Not only that, but the pillars, the leaders of the early church, Peter, James, and John, Jesus' inner crew, have signed off on his message. And in chapters 3 and 4, Paul rearticulates and expounds this gospel message. He says that as he said before when he first was with them, that all the ancient promises to Abraham, Moses, and David are fulfilled in Jesus, that Yahweh God has saved and redeemed his people, and he's come to dwell with them through the Spirit, and that the Messiah has inaugurated the reign of God's kingdom all through Jesus, the Son of God. And he's saying that this salvation is now possible in Jesus. It's not a foreign, disconnected thing from the traditional Jewish faith. It is the fulfillment and climax of the Jewish faith to Paul. It's this one story that's now extended out to all the nations and all can enter into the family now of Jesus, the family of Abraham, by placing their trust, their belief, and their allegiance in this Jesus. And so observance of the law and circumcision are no longer required as markers of the covenant family. Instead, now the family of Yahweh is defined by believing loyalty to the Son of God, Jesus, and what he's done for them, and then living as a part of this extended covenant family by the power of Jesus' spirit, which is present with us now. So then the question in chapters five and six, where our text is today, is 
Paul's saying, how then do we live in light of what Jesus has done and his spirit being with us? What do Gentile, non-Jewish, and Jewish believers do with this freedom in Christ that they've now received? This is not an afterthought in Paul's letter, but it's immensely important, and it's the focus of our time today. So let's break down the text pretty simply here real quick. So let's look at it again. Verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Stop right there. The first thing you need to know about your walk with Jesus, you were called to freedom, not bondage, not legalism, not a self-help spirituality that makes you feel good, but true, real freedom. And in Jesus' death and resurrection and the sending of his Holy Spirit, we have that freedom. See, many have thought of Christianity as a restrictive, oppressive religion that destroys joy, love, and peace in life. But here's Paul saying, first thing out the gate, you are called in Jesus to freedom. But freedom might not be enough, though, because we seem to have a problem in the most free country in the world with being very anxious and, de and depressed and enslaved to things that destroy us. <laughs> so let's keep reading. What is this freedom for? How do we use this freedom? He says, only do not let your freedom become an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another for the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Hold up here for a second. That does not sound like what I have been told about my freedom. I thought true freedom was no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. I thought freedom was nobody puts Chase in a corner. I thought that it was all self-actualization, me getting on the outside what I feel is true on the inside. I get to define freedom for myself, not according to Paul. Paul seems to be working with a different definition of freedom. He says our freedom and our new life in Jesus is not an opportunity for the flesh, for selfish gain, self-actualization, or narcissism, nor is an opportunity for legalism where you just try really hard and you try to live up to an expectation. No. We are called to freedom for life in the spirit, to love one another and the fruit of the spirit to be born in our lives as a church community. See, for Paul, these are two different ways of life that are at war with each other. The flesh versus the spirit. To live by the spirit and to use our freedom to love one another is what fulfills the law of God in the first place. But to live by our flesh, to use our freedom for selfish gain and power struggles Paul says, will cause us to bite and devour one another and to be consumed by each other. He illustrates this further in the next verse saying, but I say, live by the spirit and you will never carry out the desires of the flesh. For flesh desires against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may, whenever, that whatever you want, you may not do these things. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Okay, great, but... What does the flesh mean, though? What is Paul saying? So when we talk about the flesh, sometimes Christians have been seen as, as having a negative view of the body and physicality, which is a tragedy. Sadly, negativity towards the body has been taught by the church in the past, and I'm going to tell you right now and today that that is wrong. To believe in the body and the physical as bad is not a biblical or Christian belief. And if it's being taught by a church, it should not be being taught by a church. It's a kind of Gnostic dualism, which is a belief that creates a false dichotomy where spirit is good and body is bad. See, the early church dealt with this exact problem when the ideas of Gnosticism came around. 
Gnostics basically thought that they had access to some greater knowledge that was revealed to them after the apostles had died. And that in this revelation, that the bad physical restrictions of the body were dirty and wrong, but that the spirit is good and that the goal of our faith is to get away to this enlightened place where we're disconnected from physicality because physicality is bad. But that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that God created human bodies and said that they were good. And he said that physical creation is good. Not only that, but Jesus, God himself, comes later and dignifies the human body by taking one on for eternity. When Jesus is resurrected, he's not a disembodied cherub in a diaper with wings playing a harp. As though he was just waiting to get out of the body. No, he's resurrected in a human physical body that can be touched, that eats and drinks and touches others. And one day, the Bible says that we will all be resurrected into a glorious physical body like Jesus. So let me tell you, physicality and bodies are not wrong. God created humanity physically and said that they were good. That was before the fall. Human bodies are not wrong. We will be resurrected to a glorified body that is free from sin. But so, okay, if that's true, why does, what's Paul saying then when he's talking about the flesh as though it's the problem and that the flesh is somehow bad? Great question. I'm glad you asked. When the phrase the flesh is used in the Bible, it most often does not mean physical bodies that God created, but it's better defined by the way that the New Testament writers use it in its context. And they define it as coping mechanisms for life apart from God. One scholar puts it this way, the flesh does not have its theological emphasis in our physical body. This passage is not teaching Gnostic dualism, where spirit is good and body is bad. This passage is defining flesh, here it is, as those parts of ourselves and the systems they create that exist in rebellion to God and seek to function as coping mechanisms to keep us from depending on God. The Greek word sarx, the, good, the word for flesh, is used comprehensively to describe the state of the unsaved. Those who are in the flesh are totally under the control of their sinful passions. As such, flesh is generally used in a figurative theological sense, referring to humanity's fallen nature in our unredeemed selves. So the flesh does not mean spirit good, body bad. The flesh is talking about coping mechanisms for life apart from God grounding our life in the flesh rather than in God, who is spirit. This idea of the flesh is what Jesus says is the problem that we have to deal with. It's what he came to set us free from. He says in Mark 7, what comes out of a person, that defiles a person. For from within, from the heart of people, come evil plans, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries. All of these evil things come from within and defile a person. Yet again, this is different from what we hear in our culture. I don't know how many sermons you've heard recently on social media preached about how the flesh is bad and that what's bad comes from within us. But this is exactly what Paul's saying in Galatians 5, and it's what Jesus just said. Look at what he says next. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident. They are obvious, which are sexual immorality, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Things which I am telling you in advance, just as I said before, that the one who practices such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul and Jesus are both saying that there is an operating system by which we live apart from God 
and rely on our own instincts and our own ability and power to create the love, the joy, and the peace in our life that we desire. In this list, he gives us examples of life in the flesh. And Pastor John Tyson has a great framework for how Paul describes this life in the flesh. He says that Paul breaks it down into four categories of how we live our life. Indulgences, sexuality, religion, and relationships. Let's take each one in turn real quick. Indulgences. Life, is, is, life in the flesh is marked by unbridled desire, drunkenness, and gluttony on whatever it is that we use to self-medicate to numb our anxiety and pain that only ends up leaving us empty and unfeeling. Next is sexuality. The flesh manifests itself in a broken sexuality. Sexuality in and of itself is not bad, but when sexuality becomes the way that you find love, joy, and peace in your life, it will destroy you. Paul uses the word porneia, the Greek word porneia, is where we get the word sexual immorality, our modern word pornography. In the Bible, porneia is basically any sort of illicit sexual activity outside of God's human plan for flourishing. He uses the word debauchery, impurity. All of this is just rampant sexual desire with no end goal, no beauty, no commitment. And it ends with an unsatisfied heart that is caught in an endless numbing cycle of trying to meet your need for real love with meaningless or broken relationships or not a relationship at all, a screen. Next, he talks about religion. He uses the words idolatry and sorcery. This is so fascinating, and here's why. If you look at the ways in which we cope with the anxiety, the despair, the brokenness in our lives, we immediately first go to things apart from God. We put our trust in politics and economics, entertainment, and our own ability to fix the problems of the world. The flesh here says that God may be nice and all, but I need something other than God to get through this. We go to these things religiously as we would a God. And in fact, these things become our gods, demanding more and more sacrifice of our time, our attention, and our energy to get anything out of them until they break us down into slaves of the moment. He talks about sorcery as he talks about religion. In other translations, it's witchcraft. This is not so much about Wiccan or Satanic practices, but in this culture, it was much more about a repetitive use of drugs, sacrifices, and acts to hear from God or the gods and manipulate them into doing what we want. So often, this is why religion can be bad, because we make it into a kind of magic or sorcery to manipulate God, to get God to fend off the fear and the loneliness that we feel. God becomes a genie or a therapist. And then we are dumbfounded when God does not do what he never promised he would do, which is exactly what we want. Last, he talks about human relationships. And this is what takes up most of the list. He says licentiousness, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy. That sound like anybody to you today? Certainly it has nothing to do with the way that we treat people who disagree with us about politics, religion, economics, or just a different opinion from us on social media even. But here's what's important. When we walk in the flesh, we end up living in division, anger, rage, despair, anxiety, and depression. We allow the anxiety and the brokenness we feel to drive us to devour each other as objects conduits for us to just feel good rather than as human beings made in the image of God. These are the results of living in the flesh. We want freedom. We want joy. We want peace. 
But Paul says that when we live by the flesh, seeking to create our own love and joy and peace on our own terms, we end up living lives that are enslaved rather than free. And we are called to freedom, brothers and sisters. So you can map out how our culture has taught us to live this way. If the goal is to get love, joy, and peace, the method or the means should be self-actualization, self-help, and you do you, boo. The end result, though, as we've talked about earlier, is the most anxious, depressed, and suicidal generation in all of human history. Living life in the flesh this way leads to death, destruction, sin, and slavery. It does not lead to the freedom that we were called to. And the sad tragedy is that in our efforts to realize love, joy, and peace in our hearts, in our families, in our lives, we end up enslaved to the flesh, drug addicts, numbing ourselves in an effort to escape the brokenness, the anxiety, and the despair of our world. But you were not called to slavery, but to freedom. So what can we do? You've been trying all your life to create love, joy, and peace. How's it working out? One out of three of you will say, it's okay. Two out of three of you will say, I am not doing good. Should we try harder? Try to muster up the courage, pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps and make it happen? John Wayne style? Nope. That's what we've been doing, again, the whole time, and it's not working. But look at what Paul says next. Notice the commands when he tells us to do something in the scripture. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not let your freedom become an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Later he says, but I say, live by the Spirit. And at the end of the text he says, if we live by the Spirit, we must also follow the Spirit. We must not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. He says two things in that text. Two things that are actually what we're supposed to do. Live by the Spirit. Don't live by the flesh. That's it. It's simple. Live your life in proximity to the Holy Spirit of Jesus that lives in you in the church. And love, joy, and peace will be the fruit that are born in your life. But here's the thing, though, before we get going. I want you to know we're starting an eight-week series on each of these fruits of the Spirit. That you, I'm just kidding. I've heard that sermon though, right? Have you heard that sermon? We're going to talk about the fruit of the spirit. And now we're going to talk about how you can be more loving, more joyful, more peaceful. And each week we're going to do that. That's a great sermon series. The problem with that is that the command is not to be more loving. Because Paul just said it. You can't do it, buttercup. Sorry. It's not in you, kid. He says, live by the spirit. And then the fruit of the spirit is love in your life. You cannot create the love in your life that you desire, but the Spirit can. So the command is not to muster up the courage and make it happen. The command is to live by the Spirit and let Him bring that to birth in your life. He also says, say to not live by the flesh. So what does that mean? Say no to those indulgences, sexuality, religion, and relationships that try to enslave us. All of us, when we live our life in the flesh this way, end up enslaved to one or more of these things. It may be slavery to drugs and alcohol, trying to numb the pain of the anxiety or the emptiness that you feel. It could be sex, pornography, or other sexually explicit material that you use to feel some kind of joy in the midst of a painful life 
that ultimately leaves you joyless and numb. Could be religion, trying to fix everything, needing to be good enough, needing to force the love, the joy, and the peace that you hope for, trying to make God give you what you want. But this way ultimately leaves you feeling like you're not good enough. And so you're stuck fighting a battle that you will never win. Relationships. Could be a toxic relationship, romantic, parental, familial, a work relationship where you place all of your hopes, your identity, your dreams in this one person to fulfill your need for love, joy, and peace. You will ultimately be let down by their imperfections. And rather than loving them, you will come to hate them because they can never give you what you're looking for. All of these are operating by the power of our flesh, trying to make something happen in our life on our own terms, on our own ability. But this is not the life that you were made for. So Paul commands us to make no room for the flesh to operate in our lives. And the first command was to live by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the refreshing, renewing, empowering, transforming presence of God himself come to live in you because of Jesus' cross and resurrection. The Spirit comes not to enslave us, but to set us free and give us new life. He comes to empower you to say no to the flesh and to birth the love, joy, and peace that we all long for in our communities. In contrast to the way that our culture teaches us to live, you can map out the way that Paul and Jesus call us to live this way. If the goal is life in the Spirit, then the means are those two commands, to live by the Spirit and to not live in the flesh. And the end result is not just the love, the joy, and the peace that you hope for, but the presence of the very God himself from which they flow. You were called to so much more than the anxiety, the depression, the outrage, and the fear that you feel. It's not trying harder. It's not the right rhythms and habits. It's not hacking your life. It's not self-actualization, self-help, or any of the other things that if they worked, we would be happy. But since they haven't, have caused the most brokenness, anxiety, and depression in any generation. It's life in the Spirit by living in step with Him, saying no to the flesh, so that not only will we see love, joy, and peace birth in our lives, but we also get God, Jesus, the true creator and originator of those things. Now, that might be great if we stop there, but what does it actually mean to live by the Spirit? What does that mean practically? How can you live this out in your life? Because it's great to say, like, this little emotional plot's like, oh, I just need to live life in the Spirit. Great. And then you do nothing with it. We preach for change and response at Basha. We want to make this practically impact your life. I don't want you to feel good knowing that the Spirit wants to give you love, joy, and peace. I want you to walk out of here with a game plan to live life in the spirit, to know what that means, and to then experience the love, the joy, and the peace that Jesus has for you. So to walk in the spirit is to make your life an environment in which the spirit of Jesus loves to dwell. Our job is not to make it happen. Our job is to surrender to the spirit to create space for Jesus in our life, to agree with him and abide in him. And out of that sense of being in Jesus, he begins to take up residence, put roots down and create fruit in our lives. We let the roots of Jesus' spirit in our hearts go deep to produce real fruit, to live by a different operating system, not the flesh, which creates the evil, the anxiety and the depression that we see in our world, but the operating system of the spirit 
which frees us, allows us to love one another and bear the fruit of the Spirit that we so desperately need in our lives. So how do we live in the Spirit? We must do three things, I think. First, we must allow him to search our hearts for where we are living in the flesh and call us to repentance of life in the flesh and turn towards Jesus in his way. We must repent of the way which we live by the flesh, creating sin, brokenness, and despair. Now listen, when I say repent, I don't just mean all like a religious sadness about how I'm not good enough. No, the Greek word from which we get repent literally means to stop and turn around, to change your mind. Sadness in a religious sense is part of it, but it's much more than that. To stop, to turn around, and then to go the right way. To repent of life in the flesh is not to just feel bad about it. It's to recognize how it destroys you and separates you from God and how Jesus is calling you to go the other way with him. So first, we must repent and put the flesh to death in us. Second, we must live our lives in a way that invites the Spirit to come and live in us. A great way to start this is with scripture and prayer every day. You don't have to be a prayer warrior getting out on the top of your house at 4 a.m. crying out to God for whatever it is that you're praying for. Just start small. Start with five or 10 minutes. For 10 minutes, five minutes, you read a chapter of the Bible. And then for a couple minutes after that, you just ask God, what is he saying to you? How does he want you to live your life today based on what you've just read in scripture? How does he want you to know his love, his joy, and his peace more deeply today? Start with just a little bit of time. I promise you by sowing those tiny seeds, as Jesus says, that it will become a faith big enough to move a mountain. To put that faith down in the soil, to let it grow slowly. Don't, you don't have to be perfect. Think of your life in the spirit as a relationship just like any other. If I want to have a deep, loving, joyful, and peaceful relationship my wife, with my wife, the best way to get there is not to ignore her. Believe it or not. You can't not put work into a relationship and then get everything you've ever wanted out of it, right? Because just because you feel some way on the inside doesn't mean that that's the reality that you will then experience, right? So if I want a loving, joyful, peaceful relationship with my wife, I will spend time with her. I will make it my life's goal to be in her presence as much as I can. It's the same way with the Holy Spirit except in this scenario, you are the bride that is being pursued. The Holy Spirit wants you to be in his presence continually, and that's available for you. But just as I started with Callie, it was little bits of time here and there, beginning to know one another slowly until eventually we got married. It's a slow journey of slowly coming to know and love one another deeply. So if you don't have, maybe you want to be the guy praying up on his, on his rooftop at 4 a.m., crying out for God to change lives. Hey, love it. That's awesome. But the way that you get there is you start slowly, a couple minutes a day, just sitting in God's presence, reading his word. The main way in which we communicate with the Father is his word to us. It's the word which the Spirit uses to illuminate our hearts to God's love. It's where we get to know who Jesus is. So I'd recommend starting very small with a short passage of Scripture, a psalm maybe, or a short story from the Gospels, and then just responding in prayer. Scripture and prayer are the primary places where we develop intimacy and relationship with God, learning to speak to Him and hear His voice, His shoulder taps, as Pastor Danny loves to say. Lastly, the third thing that you can do is live life in the community where Jesus 
has set his spirit to reside. As much as I would love to tell you that you can do life on your own in the church and that Jesus is just a personal therapist for you, he's not. Jesus has chosen for his spirit to reside in his body, which is the church. You cannot have the love, joy, and peace of the spirit unless you are deeply rooted in a community where his spirit is. You just can't. It's harder that way, for sure. None of us are perfect. I'm not perfect. But the way that Jesus has decided to do things is to, for his spirit to dwell in the church community. You must be rooted in the vine to produce fruit in the spirit of Jesus and his spirit resides in the church. So get in church, man. If you're listening online, get here. Get in a community where you can be vulnerable and talk about the anxiety and the depression that you struggle with. The church is a hospital for broken people to come and find the healing touch of Jesus' spirit. But you have to be in community. You have to be here. God has desired for his presence to, to dwell in his church. So if you want life in the spirit, you must be in the church. So I would ask you, evaluate the importance of the church in your life. How often are you getting in church? Is it enough to be connected to the spirit of the living God, to experience the love, the joy, and the peace that he has for you? Are you using your freedom to love and serve one another as Paul asked us to, or are you using it to devour and consume in order to just feel good, to numb the pain? Jesus has a better way for you, and you can find it in the church and in his scripture in prayer and relationship with him, and by turning away from the pain, from the flesh that causes the pain. As we close, I want to invite the band back up. I want to invite us all to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us now. We are called to be a spirit-filled church in a secular, me-centered age of the flesh. We are called in a world of anxiety and depression to be people of supernatural love, joy, and peace. We are called for his voice to listen to his voice, to live in step with him, to love one another, and to make no room for the flesh in our lives. What would happen if we started to take these words of Paul, spoken by the inspiration of, his, of Jesus' spirit? What if we took these words as serious, true, and important for us? What if they do offer a way out and into the freedom that we're called to? What if we began to live this way and we became a church of such love, joy, and peace that people could only explain what was happening in this building, in the three campuses of Bayshore, if they could only explain it if God's presence really was here transforming us. So I wanna make space for you to respond right here and right now, to make that commitment now, to hear the Lord's voice and respond in devotion and obedience and love. See, I believe that God has been speaking to all of us Where's your heart at? What operating system are you living your life by? We're going to move into a time of response, prayer, and worship. Would you stand with us right now? As we worship and as we sing, I want to invite you to pray and to, to, to do some self-reflection. Where have you allowed your freedom to be used for your own gain? Where are you enslaved to the works of the flesh and need to repent, to turn around and go back the other way, seeking the healing and the forgiveness of God? In what ways can you make room for the spirit to speak in your life and to dwell with him that you might walk in step with him and be led by him? 
And how might you need to recenter church in your life today? You were called to freedom. My heart aches for those of us who have lived in a perpetual state of anxiety and depression. That is not the life that Jesus has for you. That is not the life that you are called to. And so I pray today that as we enter into this time, that you would sense the spirit of Jesus calling you through his word, through worship and prayer, calling you to a life of freedom, to bear the fruit of the spirit in your life and to experience the love, the joyful and peaceful presence of the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, we invite your Holy Spirit here now. Would you speak to us? Would you speak to us of your love, of your joy and your peace? Would you set people free today from anxiety and depression? Would you teach them to see that their love, their joy and their peace is not something that they can make happen on their own, but it is found by life rooted in your presence. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us on the Bayshore Podcast. I want to encourage you to take this message you just received and allow it to go deep into your soul and let Jesus do the deep work that only He can do. A special thanks to everyone that gives generously to Bayshore. It's because of you that this ministry is possible, creating life change all over the world. You can be a part of spreading the message around the world by going to bayshore.online and clicking give. For all things Bayshore, visit bayshore.online to find out what your next step may be. You can subscribe right here and share this podcast with your friends and family. Thank you again for listening. God bless you.